0: What does motion sound like? With Kizik Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks.
1: Happy New Year, DSR listeners. This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkoff, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Nine, twelve,
0: ten, 12, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of our special series of podcasts focused on books you should read. The latest book is The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy, by Anand Girdares. He uh, is probably known to you as a commentator on TV. You possibly have read him in The Times or The New Yorker or The Atlantic or Time. Um, welcome, Anand. Thank you so much for having me. This is a terrific book on a really important subject and also one that I, I, I particularly like, the way that you went about doing it. You look at people who are tackling what might be described as one of the biggest problems in a divided nation, which is how do you change minds and you provide multiple perspectives of people doing this, was the current severity of the political and cultural divides in the U.S. the thing that led you here, or was there something else that led you here?
1: Yeah, it was. It, it was. I mean, I think I when I, mean, I started the book a couple of years ago late in 2019 and early 2020, and in some ways, the reporting project was a, a kind of attempted antidote to my own despair. I mean, I, I looked around at a country that had made, in my view, a, a ghastly political choice in 2016, a country that you know, was backsliding away from the values of democracy that it had preached to the world a country that where the american dream is essentially less actually true than it is in most european countries and a country where attempts to change these things are kind of crashing on the on the rocks of this inability to change people's minds to reach people and i felt that despair and i wondered whether others had a way out that i didn't i if if i had known the answer to this in my own heart it would have been a memoir but uh, I, I didn't. And so I, I decided to go spend time with people who, are, who were still attempting persuasion in a time of polarization, who still were trying to change minds in order to change things. And I tried to learn from them. And what I learned is that there are people doing remarkable work in communities across this country and to a certain degree in national political life to change people's minds, to move people. They refuse to give in to this fatalism about other people that in some ways is poison in a democracy. And they are going about their persuasive labors in ways, frankly, that are the opposite of what a lot of us are doing casually on social media or in our own families or own workplaces and communities. They flipped around a lot of my own assumptions about the best way to be a persuader. And so I wrote the book to kind of uplift a bunch of people who had solved what I hadn't, who have figured out what I and perhaps people listening to this have not in their own lives. And I think these these persuaders I write about really show a kind of new playbook for frankly saving democracy in this country.
0: Yeah, no question. And uh, I was delighted you had tackled this subject. I, I'm a big fan of your prior book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, which sort of tackled this uh issue of philanthropy. And I don't know, there were some scenes in that I recall that had to do with sort of being at places like Aspen and cringing at the parade of rich people with Chardonnay um, talking about poor people someplace else. Thought it was a great book. And again, you, you, you took some common points of view and turned them on their head and inside out. That's just what was needed here. Because I think the common view is, well, the, the, the way we've got to solve this divide in the country is to meet these folks halfway, split the baby in half. And yet, one of the clearest takeaways from this book is that's not the right.
1: Yeah, if you've ever been a baby, you know that splitting the baby in half is a, a suboptimal uh, solution. Very few babies live to tell about uh, that approach. No, you're exactly right. And and I think it's worth unpacking that for folks listening to this. I think when you think about, in particular, the Democratic Party's reigning approach to persuasion of the last generation in the kind of neoliberal era we've been living in, it is really baby splitting. It is compromising, diluting, watering down what you stand for in order to reach this mythical person in the middle generally a kind of white working class voter from, you know, Western Pennsylvania that every Democratic politician is sort of afraid of and diner Americans, right? So How do we cater to the diner Americans? And the problem with this for Democrats is that when you start with a thing like everyone having health care, and then you water it down, or you start with a thing like even Joe Biden's original climate proposal, and then you water it down to please one senator from a coal state. Um, two things happen. First of all, those diner Americans in Western Pennsylvania, white working class voters, who you're so desperately trying to court, they still think you're a communist, even though you've watered it down. The, your efforts to woo the moderate seldom work. They they still think you're a radical. They're still in the grips of a kind of view of you that is being pumped to them by Fox News, etc. But your base, the people who are most passionate, about you and your cause and these issues, they get sad, they get demoralized, right? They think that their priorities are not reflected. And so a lot of the people I'm writing about in this book are essentially, I think, in different ways, trying to turn that reigning theory of persuasion by dilution to turn it on its head and say, actually, the way you persuade is by building a movement that is more attractive than the other side's movement. And that doesn't mean it's weak sauce or, or diluted or, or, you know, compromising middle groundy. It's building a movement that's more attractive. And there's many elements to that that, you know, that are kind of unconventional relative to this, this view. So making a movement that, that actually can command attention, right? That knows how to play in a social media era where what people are talking about is going to have more power than what people are not talking about. The right is very good at this. Donald Trump, a certified idiot, is very good at this particular skill of getting a whole nation to talk about your ideas. On the more virtuous side, you know, AOC, who I write about in the book, is very good at this. When you look at AOC's talent for this, then compare her to virtually anybody else on the political left. The just ability to make people engage with an idea that you're trying to put into the bloodstream of the country, very important skill. The ability to build a real community around a movement, not just be asking people for $10 five times a day or $5 10 times a day, but building real IRL physical party infrastructure in every community in this country. Bhaskar Sankara, founded Jacobin Magazine, has written you know, that the, the center left and left parties that won in the 20th century around the world were so deeply rooted in people's lives, but often particularly as labor parties connected to labor unions, that every building in a city would have had a local representative of that party, right? So if you got a weird letter from the IRS, confusing letter from the IRS, and you're not rich enough to hire an accountant or you know whatever, and you're scared, you could go to Gilda on the third floor of your building And, you know, she was the local Democratic Party lady and be like, Gilda, like, what's up with this? What's up with this letter? And Gilda would calm you down or connect you to someone, you know, and and that has kind of fallen into the label of like party machines and party bosses in Tammany Hall. And I think we need to separate the corrupt part of what that world was from the very virtuous thing of like parties actually were physical presences in people's lives, IRL presences. They were doing picnics and barbecues and they were just walking with people. So that notion of movements that, that can actually be a presence in people's lives can actually provoke, command attention, pick fights when fights need to be picked, but also I think tell a better story about America, tell a, a more galvanizing, hopeful, patriotic story about America. I, I don't think The left can afford to concede patriotism to people who, you know, shoot beer bottles in their backyard to prepare for their Civil War fantasies. Right. I I think the, the political left has a remarkable story to tell about patriotism, right? When so many families in this country drive their own children, teenage children, out of their homes because the parents cannot accept that their children love the people they love. Parents cannot accept that the Children answer to a name that is not the name they were born with. Parents cannot accept who the children are, know themselves to be. Where do those kids go? Where do those kids from small towns in Oklahoma and Texas and where do they go? They go to New York City. They go to Los Angeles. They go to Philadelphia. They go to San Francisco. They go to Chicago. We in those places know patriotism because we love patriotism the children of our fellow citizens when those, their own parents are unable to do so. And that's patriotism. That's, so, so I refuse to concede this notion of patriotism to the right, and I think it's very important to build a pro-democracy movement in this country that is able to, to do that.
0: Well, I think, you know, as I mean, many people will take away many different things, perhaps, from this book. There are a couple that I took away, and. You know, the book is told in the stories of people who are engaged in this, which I thought was very effective and compelling. There were kind of three that I took away as the alternative to cutting the baby in half. One is listen. And, you know, and that's related to the point that you just made be in the community, listen to the people that you're talking to. Two is don't apologize for what you believe. Don't dilute what you believe. Make the best case you can make for what you believe. And the third, and I, you know, I've got this in several places, but the AOC chapter, and I, I, I'm—I'll admit it—I'm an AOC fan. I think she's a, a, you know, a terrific example of what the politicians we ought to be turning to look like. Play the long game. It's you're not going to win this game in, in in the short term. And it seemed to me that if you do those things, you can be quite successful. Am I missing something or did I?
1: No, I think that's, I think that's a great, that's a great way to frame it, you know, and, and just say a word about each. But I think if you, if you look at the, the listening point, I think there's a pressure that a lot of us feel in this moment, which I, I feel, and it's it some way, in some ways, a social media fueled pressure to call out anything that you hear someone saying that is, that is, you know, disparaging about a, group of people or whatever, as soon as you hear it. And that in a way you're almost complicit if you, if you just let it, let it lie or you just listen. And one of the things I learned from these persuaders I write about, particularly in a movement called Deep Canvassing, is these are gay rights campaigners starting in California in 2008 when they lost gay marriage there, but it's now spread to many issues and across the country. They go to people's doors, they knock on the door and they just listen. They just listen to all the reasons they hate gay people, and they listen to all the reasons. And by the way, some people tell them all the reasons they love gay people. I mean, there's all kinds of things happening on the door. But if someone is hateful, there's limits. I mean, they not. They don't. They don't sit there and endure violence or attacks on them. But 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 they will go in, and someone may you know may say things about how they think gay people are a threat to kids, and they'll listen. Why do you think they're a threat to kids? You know, and they'll just listen. It's kind of amazing. I look at these videos of it. I watched it myself in Arizona. Like, I don't know that I could do it, right? I I just kept feeling this pressure to say, you got to fact check that. You got to, you got to rebut that. But they don't do that at first. They just listen, get it all out, get it all out, get all your bile out. And then having listened, they've built trust, right? They've, that person now feels that they're being heard. And then what these canvassers do is they, they don't try to implant the microchip of their opinion in someone else's head. They try to see if there's anything else going on in you that might sit in tension with the view that you expressed about gay people or about immigrants or about trans people or about honest history. And they try to play up those potential sources of dissonance. And it turns out we all have sources of dissonance with our outward stances and opinions, particularly moderate, kind of undecided, persuadable voters have a lot going on. They may hate immigrants, but support gay rights because of their nephew, right? how's that person going to vote? It's not clear. They could make a strong case either way. You have to be in their lives and show them, have them see themselves in your movement. You know, I think on the long game point, this is something that the right has done very well. It has really strategically, you know, Kurt Anderson's book, Evil Geniuses, Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, other books for uh, for your recommendation engine, have really laid out how the right did that and really did long-term associative kind of Tocquevillian movement building so that you show up as a right-wing person at Harvard Law School, there's an infrastructure for you. There's a club for you to join. There's dinners for you to go to, right? The political left, the pro movement doesn't really offer that. People are kind of on their own. And so thinking about what does it look like to have an associative long-game strategy for the political left to create... What Alicia Garza, one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter in the book, calls homes, political homes for people, right? Not just vote for me, give me five dollars, but are we building homes for people? Are our movement spaces the most fun spaces in people's lives, right? Not just Medicare for all or here's my you know, climate policy, but are our movements the place people want to spend time after, at the end of a tired day at work? Uh, is it where they're finding community? Is it where they're finding comfort when times are hard? Is it where they're finding help in a pandemic? Um, I think there's a lot of there's a case to be made for really learning some of the lessons of what the right did to to play the long game and deploying some of those tactics, but for good.
0: No doubt. But let me offer you a perspective that kept coming back to me as I was reading this. And you know, one of the reasons I think the book is vitally important is I think the issues that you you talk about, preservation of democracy in the United States, for example, are so critical, and it's really going to be the measure of the current generations whether whether we succeed in preserving our institutions and values and system. And this process of persuasion is clearly going to be critical to that much more critical than the easier processes of arguing now having said all that i think the the rules that you've applied have actually been applied for longer than many people give credit and the you know the the, the, the what i typically will point to in this is that you know people will talk about progressive issues and they'll mean a certain set of things fairer taxes, dealing with green issues in a way, dealing with guns, dealing with being able to marry who you want to marry, et cetera, et cetera. Well, st- stunningly, particularly for somebody who's slightly older than you, like me, in the course of the past 25 years, American views on all those things have changed dramatically. And in the course of those past 25 years, in the course of certainly the 21st century, you now look at those issues, and and they're not left wing views or democratic views. They're substantial majority views, two thirds, seventy percent, eighty percent majority views. If whether it means fair taxes or gun control or climate change or you know gay marriage or legalizing marijuana or well you know whatever all the, that whole basket, something big has shifted. And, and and in some ways i don't think we give the left enough credit for having advanced their agenda and in fact part of the v- virulence or the the intensity of the fight from the right is i think the sense they're losing ground w- what do you that think of
1: is that spot on both of those points this is like in a way this is like something that you know, infuriates me. And I I actually don't think it's about giving the left credit. I don't think the left claims credit for the remarkable progress it has achieved. And I think this gets to something very, very deep in the psychology of the left that actually AOC talks about to the end of the chapter, which is that I think if you are on the left, in some ways, there is often a professional identity around being an underdog, around having very powerful forces arrayed against you and losing. And and when it comes to, you know, the issue about billionaires and, and the American power structure, over the last generation, the left really has lost to an ascendant right. However, you are absolutely right that if you step back and say, there have been forces over the course of American history, forces for extending the blessings of liberty to more people and more fulsomely, and another set of forces, a kind of faction devoted to shrinking or keeping small the blessings of liberty to a kind of smaller we versus a bigger vision of a bigger we. Again and again and again, the bigger we has won. This faction opposed the end of slavery. They lost. They opposed labor reforms at the end of the 19th century to protect workers, the yawning inequality. They lost. They opposed women's suffrage. They lost. They opposed, you know, the New Deal and unions and basic safety net, they lost. They opposed racial integration, they lost. They opposed opening immigration to non-white countries in 1965, they lost. They opposed gay rights, they lost. So uh, time and time and time again, this faction has been routed by the forces of progress. As you say, the right knows this and its profound sense of insecurity and the fact that it's willing to now advocate political violence and coups as a n- part of the normal course of business grows out of this sense that it basically has not won any of these major contests in the long run over whether to keep liberty for some or to extend it to more. And I think it's high time that progressive forces claim the progress they've achieved and tell people about the progress they've achieved and, and don't feel a need to be always dissatisfied as a way to give themselves a sense of purpose. There has to be a way to keep oneself motivated by what has not yet been done. That's important, that's the fire, that's the flame. But if that motivation, that, that kind of motivating force of all that has left to be done, causes you to kind of erase what you have done, I don't think you're doing a great job of selling yourselves. And this is where Going back to the point about patriotism, this is, to me, what, a, what an attractive, energizing, exuberant political left would look like, which is to say, we have won these fights again and again. These small-hearted people have tried to stop every single extension of the blessings of liberty to more people. They have lost every time. They're going to lose again. The question is, is their backlash a big and long one this time, or is it something we Get over in a relatively fast period of time, but we got to buck up. Like no one likes to join the losing team, as Anat Shankar Asoria, one of the people I read about the book, says. And and we need to stop acting like the losing team when we have in fact done remarkable work pushing this country in the direction of a real multiracial democracy. You are somewhat your foreign policy person. You spend a lot of time in the world. You know, I mean, America has a lot of faults. America has a lot of history that's to reckon for. America has a much worse safety net than countries in Europe, et cetera. But on this notion of building a multi-racial democracy, America is actually doing something that no country in Europe is really attempting, right? No country in Europe is on track to do demographically what we are doing, to be country, a country truly made of the world, a country with people from all countries. And so I think we need to celebrate that and feel feel proud of what we're doing and sell to the American people a vision that is thrilling and exciting and galvanizing and not to unwittingly build up this reactionary movement against it as some brave new movement of the future. It is a sad sack movement of resentment and nostalgia for the past that will be defeated.
0: Absolutely right. And one of the things that infuses the book, and I have to admit I'm a bit of a sucker for this, is optimism. And that you know there is a hopefulness in the arguments you make. There's a, a sense that this is a, a, a winnable effort, and indeed, I you know I think when you look at the progress that's been made, it shows that this work works and is important. And this is not a time to be complacent. It also you know, suggests that if indeed the arc of the moral universe is long and bends towards justice or wisdom or goodness, it's not an accident. People have to work towards that, and they have to embrace the techniques that work towards that. And what you've done here is you've gone out and talked to a bunch of people who've devoted their lives towards bending that arc a little bit, doing what they could to move it in those directions. And that's why it's such an essential book to read right now and why I think people need to go and dive into this stuff rather than a lot of the other things that pass for political discussion. And I say this as a guy who just put out a book talking about stuff that happened in the Trump administration. I think the most successful people in American politics right now are tuning that out and they're focusing on what works and how to make people's lives better. And I think if they read this book called The Persuaders at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy, they'll make it easier for themselves to be successful. They'll appreciate what works. So I want to congratulate you. Terrific book, very timely. And I hope a lot of a lot of people go out there and uh, read it. And maybe we'll have you come back and, you know, some point in the future and talk about how all the problems are solved and why we're all moving to the beach.
1: I would love that. I'll be the, I'll be the first to report that when it's happening. <laughs>
0: okay. Nice to talk to you, Anand. Bye-bye.